0: God, please give me your words this morning. God, I pray that I would just be faithful to what you have to say to this people gathered here this day, your body. Amen. So if we haven't met, my name is Tony. I have the just the pre- pleasure and privilege to be on pastoral staff here. We're taking a break from 1 Samuel and we're um, gonna start next week, back up in 1 Samuel. So if you're like, what happened? I thought you guys were teaching through the Bible. Yes, we were for like three months straight, and now we've had this little break for a little bit, and we'll be back in 1 Samuel uh, basically until uh, almost August with a little break on the Holy Spirit. We're going to spend a couple weeks right around Pentecost to talk about the Holy Spirit. If you were here last week, um, essentially what we're trying to do is spend two weeks focused on What are some common commitments that we can make as a body in this particular cultural moment? And part of this is shaped by the fact that when we started the church plant uh, just before 2017, this group of people uh, made a few commitments to one another. Before the church plant, right, they said they were going to set aside their preferences. When you start a church plant, there's a lot of ways a church could go, directions, and they were going to set aside their preferences to let God do a cool work in this place. And two, they said, you know, and if we discern that this is just not the church for us, what we're going to do is we're not going to gossip in our not-parking-lot outside. You know, we're not going to, like, backbite and form alliances and then attack. We're going to leave blessing this place and God's work here. If you want the longer story, I shared it last week. This week, I'm doing the cliff note. But our thought was, you know, five years later, what are some common commitments we need to make? As we enter this season, in this cultural moment, you know what would it look like for us to have some common commitments together? And last week I went over two of them. This week I'm going to go over the next two. Here are the four. I'm just going to read them. In a culture that worships individual preference, we want to live open-handed before Jesus. In a culture that reacts to and defends against The other, we want to listen, to understand, and welcome. Now, those are the two I went over last time, uh, last week. These are the two we're going to go over this week, and hopefully the projector will work by the time I really get there and you need to see it. But if if it doesn't, you know, God's people have been meeting for a long time without projectors. I trust that God has given you a human mind that is capable of remembering things. Even though there's all kinds of studies, oh, here comes the caffeine. Even though there's all kinds of studies that say our attention span is less than a goldfish now. Have you guys read those? Pretty interesting. Okay, back to the text. All right, the second two commitments. In a culture that settles for distraction and busyness, we want to make space for and prioritize our internal life with God. In a culture that confuses with fragmented truth claims, we want to come under the authority of the Scripture and the leading of the Spirit. And we're going to talk about those two, which got projected. How cool is that? Okay. And uh, thank you. And uh, so those are the two we're going to focus on today. You missed out. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you, go listen to the other ones. Uh, They'll kind of orient the whole four commitments. But uh, for today, we're going to do these two. It's going to be a little bit like drinking through a fire hose, but that's okay because this, you don't have to remember everything. We're going to keep coming back to these commitments. They're not something you have to just like memorize and then forget about for the rest of your life. We're going to keep coming back. Now, if you're new visiting, uh, I hope this is like a window into who we are. Uh, if you've been here a while, I hope nothing surprises you in what I've said and you're like, oh yeah, that just kind of makes sense of what you've already said before. With that said, I want to focus on the first one in a culture that settles for distraction and busyness, we want to make space for and prioritize our internal life with God. But the question, how do we do this? All right as I'm around folks, uh, it's pretty clear to me that a lot of us have stuff on our plates, right You're around singles, young marrieds. It's like a culture of phobo, right? The fear of the better offer. So you commit to everything and then cancel, and you just, your plate is overflowing with all the cool stuff you could do. All the adventures, all the digital distractions, whether it's video games, TikTok, to cool events you could go to, the sky is the limit. And if you happen to have little kids, I remember this season of our life, we're sort of out of it, but I remember my wife and I like, would lay down at night, and we wouldn't say good night to each other. We'd just look each other in their eyes and be like, good luck, you know? (laughs) Because our kids didn't sleep till they were like five. So we were just exhausted. It was tiring. So you'd get to the end of the day, and all you feel like you had left in you was to, like, click on Netflix and fall asleep. Yeah, and then maybe you're an empty nester or maybe you're not even there. Maybe you're a middle school, high schooler, and now you have effectively become an Uber driver that's unpaid. All you're doing is shuttling back and forth. Or you're an empty nester and you're in this period and you think, ah, oh, I'm going to have all this time. But really what you're doing now is reimagining your entire life. You're probably at the peak of your career, so your career is busier than any other time. And then you think, Eureka, I'm retired It's going to just be all beaches and relaxation. And what you find is that you're traveling all over the place to visit grandkids. You're traveling around the world because you didn't get to do it for the last 40 years because of all the stuff I just mentioned. And so you actually find you're always in transition coming in and out. And it's hard to feel like you're grounded in your life. Sometimes... um, I do this social experiment because if you actually talk to people, people often say something like, you say, hey, how you doing? I'm busy, right? Who hasn't heard that, right? So I often do this social experiment where I go up to people and they're like, how you doing? I'm like, "Ah, a little bored. And they look at me like I'm crazy. Like, get your stuff together. There's plenty to do, you know? Barbara Brown Taylor says that we have made an idol out of exhaustion. Sometimes I wonder if she's right. We're doing so many things. We're just tired all the time, which makes us more vulnerable to distraction. Aaron and I went to a conference before COVID. Uh, Mark Laberton, who's the president of Fuller, uh, had this line. He talked about how Our culture has these mesmerizing rhythms that sort of attract and lull us. Does anyone have a supercomputer on them right now? Yeah, a couple of you? Yeah, let me see, does anyone have one? Yeah, let me see your supercomputer for a second. Does anyone have one of these? You have an infinite library, bigger than any library that's ever existed in the history of the world, of images, of videos, text, email. I mean, literally, this is a world of distraction at the edge of your fingertips. Studies show that 80% of us go to bed with it at night, right next to us. And then we wake up in the morning. What's the first thing you do? You grab it because you cannot leave a room without putting it in your pocket. Otherwise, you feel naked. Thank you. Well done. (laughs) I'll pay you later. Um, But we carry these infinite distraction mechanisms with us. They also do awesome things, good things too. But we live in this world where we've made night out of an exhaustion and then we have an infinite distraction mechanism within hand's reach every moment of every day. Now I want to, you know, one of you at one point came up to me and said something like, you know, Tony, every time you talk about this idea of like, slowing down or not being busy, like, I just feel like I can't do that. Like, I have all these obligations. And I think it's fair. And I want to create a contrast this morning between what I would call busyness and just a full life. Busyness, I would say, is when you're hijacked by the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture and the demands of people in your world fullness. You can have a full life that's shaped, actually, by the invitation of God. Right? When God designed work and life, He wasn't imagining you just sit around on a rock and do nothing. Right? Read through the Scriptures. There's plenty of people that have full lives and lots of responsibilities, but you don't have to have a busy life. Right? A busy life is some, a life that's hijacked by the distractions of the world. A life that's hijacked by the demands of everyone in your life. And God's voice doesn't have much say. And in this culture of distraction and busyness, which often is how our life functions, Jesus, I think, calls us to make space for and prioritize our internal life with Him. Right? We're not supposed to be like our neighbors We're actually supposed to be different. When Jesus was asked, what is the most important thing to do on earth? What did he say? Pray for five minutes a day and attend church every week. (laughs) If he had said that, it would be easy. You wouldn't need an internal life because you could just have an external to-do list that you just checked off. That's not what he says. He says this, Love God with all of your mind, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. But this is the thing. You cannot do that if you aren't aware of what's going on inside of you. Last time I checked, all of those things are in you. They're not actually a behavior checklist. To determine whether you are loving God, with all of who you are. We actually need to stop and think about it. All my heart, all my soul, all my strength. In a cultural moment that's calling us towards distraction and busyness, we actually have to prioritize our internal life with God. Similarly, right, Jesus tells us, love your neighbor as yourself, But the very nature of this command requires self-reflection. He doesn't say, Okay, guys, say hi to everyone you pass on the bike path. He doesn't say volunteer at the soup kitchen once a week and you've nailed it. Love your neighbor as your self this actually requires us to think, what does this even mean? How do I love my neighbor as myself? Right? It requires us to actually withdraw from the busy, the distraction, to slow down and prioritize inside of ourselves. What does it look like to prayerfully discern what it looks like to love my neighbor at work, my neighbor on my block, my neighbor, in my family. See, one can't love God with all of one's heart and one's neighbor as oneself in a culture that is bent towards distraction and busyness. We actually have to intentionally make space for our internal life with God. This becomes really clear as you read Jesus' other teachings. I mean, just look at the Sermon on the Mount right jesus clearly recognizes behavior's matter but at every turn he's like hey look inward you're concerned with murder me too jesus says how about you think about the role of anger in your life you don't like adultery me neither why don't you consider the power that lust has over you and your actions Time and time again, he takes behaviors and he invites his listeners, right, to consider what's going on inside of them. Essentially, he tells them, if you want to love God and participate in his kingdom, right, you need to make space and prioritize your internal life with him. I want to highlight something here because I feel like this gets kind of lost in this dialogue. And because we're in a confusing cultural moment this idea of like an internal life gets shaped in many different ways. Um, so I want to use this little whiteboard here. So like in the, in the secular West, uh, an internal life with God is often shaped by like mindfulness or Myers-Briggs or your Enneagram. And essentially, it has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with me. Why do I do this? So that I know myself. That's the whole point of having an internal life. So that you know yourself and you're probably a nicer coworker, right? In Eastern spirituality, it has nothing to do with the cross or Jesus. I wasn't sure how to like do this. Let's just call this the universe. But the idea is the person kind of loses a sense of self and merges with the universe, right? Eastern spirituality is based on self emptying. You lose a sense of self and you merge with the universe, fate, lowercase God, however you wanna frame that. Right? those are different ways that internal life is sort of understood. With Jesus, this is important, internal life is not just about the person or just about God it's actually both and they work together you might call it like a a dialectical model so dia and logos through conversation so as You are in conversation with God in the Spirit. You're learning about yourself, your motivations. God's teaching you all kinds of things. And then from that self-awareness, then you're loving God and neighbor. But it requires the internal life in that dialogue. Uh, John Calvin, he's one of the most famous thinkers of the Reformation. In his by far most famous work called The Institutes, this is how he begins The Institutes. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one proceeds and bring forth the other is not easy to discern. Essentially what Calvin is saying, one of the greatest thinkers of Christian history is there's this intimate relationship between the human and their understanding of God and their understanding of God and how that informs their self-understanding. There's this intimate connection that is shaped when we prioritize our internal life with God and then bring it into His presence. This is why when you read the Gospels, this makes a lot of sense. When Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, he's often like, you guys are so focused on your external behavior. This is one of his more intense lines to them in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Right? If you go to someone's house and they pour you tea or coffee, you're not checking the outside of the cup to make sure it doesn't have dirt and dust in it. What you care about is the inside. Because I don't want dusty tea. the same way in life. He's like, you guys are too focused on your behaviors, your external life with God, Pay attention to your internal life with God. The cool thing is Jesus doesn't just tell us these things. He actually shows us. When you read the Gospels, you see it. And again, back to the full life versus the busy life thing. Jesus has a very full life, right? He's modeling what is it like for us to follow him and what does he do? He doesn't just sit on a rock all day. He's constantly bombarded with human needs. He's constantly trying to faithfully respond to the Father's invitation. Jesus goes to hang out with Peter and his mother-in-law and the entire town of Capernaum is gathered outside of his door, right? He's at this other person's house and people are literally breaking in the roof to layer someone down to like have him heal them. Everywhere he goes, thousands of people are following him. There is real need. You think you have a lot of responsibilities in your life and a lot of needs in your life? You probably do, I can pretty much guarantee this. Jesus had more. This is one of the things we do internally, but I have so many things I need to do. Yeah, okay. You weren't the son of God. (laughs) Jesus had more. And yet, what does he do? Despite this, this overwhelming need and the ability to meet the need, Jesus regularly removes himself from the distractions, from the overwhelming need and desire of others to be with the Father. To talk to him in prayer. Hey God, this is what's going on. Let me go through these. There's a ton of them. Luke five sixteen. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He talked to the Father. And when you get to John, you see that all of Jesus' actions are shaped by these conversations with the Father. How does Jesus know how to leverage his time? How does Jesus know how to do different things? He talks to God. And Jesus had the added benefit of not being sinful. We, on the other hand, are broken little creatures. So we have the added complexity of then having to talk with God about all of our motivations because they're often funky. This was Jesus' habit, his practice. Mark writes, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke 6, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. In Matthew, Jesus sends the disciples on a boat ride. He dismisses the crowd and then says this. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. In the midst of all the distractions around Jesus, in the midst of all the need, Jesus removes himself to talk with his Abba, with his Father. He prioritizes his internal life with the Father. Now, I realize that for us, you know, we see these examples and then hear a sermon like this and maybe your mind is instantly going to, oh, I should really pray more. Man, I'm kind of lame. You know, <laughs> I feel that a little bit. Or man, I should really read the Bible more. uh, Or something like, yeah, I haven't practiced the Sabbath in like, ever, um, and we're sort of beating ourselves up, and maybe there's appropriateness to that, but I don't think that's where I want to go this morning. So one of the things I think we often do is we listen to a message like this, we feel a little guilty in the short run, and what we think is, I'm just going to start doing this, and then we try, and then about two weeks later, we give up, because we, all we essentially did was replay Thanksgiving dinner, where like, you go to your plate, and you just think, I can add a little more to it. Oh, my plate can fit, but there is a physical limit to the amount of food you can fit on a plate. And someone talks about this like on Sunday morning and they say, you got to make space for prioritizing God. And then you think, you know, you have this massive list of things you're doing and you're like, all right, I'm going to add another thing in. I'm going to wake up earlier. I'm going to stay up later. I'm going to do this. And by the end, you're just so tired. Within eight days, you're like, yeah, I guess that's not happening. Anyone ever done that? Don't raise your hand. Yeah. Okay, raise your hand. Yeah, I'm there too. So what I want you to do today, this week, if you can, is not create a to-do list, but to actually create a stop-doing list. Because the thing is, you're already doing a lot of things. My question is, are those the things that God really wants you to be doing? And we actually can't add stuff in very effectively until we've identified the things we shouldn't be doing, the things that are distracting us, the things that are bringing us into the vortex of busyness and we get trapped in there. What are those things? One of the things I notice regularly, meeting with you and others, you know, just throughout my pastoral vocation, Often we have this image of the good person. And the image of the good person always says yes. That's what it means to be good. I'm a good girl. I'm a good boy. I say yes. But this is the problem. What we end up doing is we end up saying yes to everything. And what it does is we end up saying yes to the demands of everyone else in our life. And then we get home and we're so exhausted by saying yes to everyone that then we just click on the distraction machine because we're tired. And TikTok helps us feel like we can take a breath. Or Netflix, or YouTube, or social media, or whatever. And we think that it's addressing our issue, but really we just replay this same dynamic Every day and every week we say yes because we think we are being good, when in fact we are just exhausting ourselves and making ourselves vulnerable to the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture. This is why a stop doing list is so important. And maybe on the top of it is, I'm not gonna say yes to everyone. I'm gonna learn to say no. Because a good person is not a person who always says yes. A good person is shaped by a person who listens to the invitation of Jesus and responds with yes. Which begins with a stop doing list so we can reorient and then start doing the things that Jesus is saying. Yeah, do that. Make sense? In a culture that settles for distraction and busyness, makes space for and prioritize our internal life with God. Second point, in a culture that confuses with fragmented truth claims, we also want to come under the authority of Scripture and the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know, our, our cultural moment is really captured well in the, in the Gospels, actually. Jesus and Pilate are having this discussion sort of back scene, the crowd's out there, they're uh, behind the scenes. Jesus says in John 18, 37, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Right? He's coming to declare the truth. Right? And if you are, want to be a person of the truth, you listen to his voice. Right? Jesus' presumption is, oh, there is a truth, and I have it. And to this, Pilate replies, what is truth? All right, and this is probably a question you're asked all the time at your work, at school, in your family, on your block. You know, what is truth? Your truth? My truth? That truth? What is truth? But if you read the Gospels, right, if you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus is pretty clear, right? He says he bears witness to the truth. And the people who are interested in his voice listen to his voice because it is true. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. Jesus is truth. He is also the way to truth. Now, Obviously, this is a pretty exclusive claim. If you want to know truth, Jesus is a good place to start. If you want to find the truth, Jesus' way is a good way to get there. But if you say this a little too openly in our culture, you might be called arrogant. You might be called egotistical. You might be like, that's not humble. Instead, another parable is offered. This is called the Parable of the Elephant and the Three Blind Men. Let's see if I can flip this without knocking that TV over. Yes, nice. So, I didn't draw this, as you can tell. (laughs) Uh, Nina from CSUMB drew this. The Parable of the Three Blind Men works like this. There are three blind men in the world, and one of them approaches the elephant. Right, he's blind, so he can't see what is true. Right? And he touches this part of the elephant, the middle, and he's like, ah, the truth, right? It's like a wall. There's another blind man. And this blind man touches the trunk. Ah, the truth, it's like a snake. And the third blind man uh, touches the ear. Ah, the truth, it moves like a wing. And the point of the parable is simply, we're all sort of blind people in this world searching for the truth. And the idea is that none of us have exclusive, an a, exclusive ability to see or touch or experience truth. And this is culturally considered very humble and appropriate. You should come into a space and say something like, my truth. Right? That's not what Oprah says. Like the most powerful tool you have is something like, your truth. There's, there's some validity to this, right? Like we are subjective human beings who have a perspective. Makes sense. On one level, right, and if you go into a setting and you say this is the truth, you're arrogant. If you go in saying it's my truth, you're recognizing your blindness, you're considered humble and culturally appropriate. Anyone ever had that experience? A few people, a lot of nodding heads. The thing is, there's two primary problems with this parable. The first is this. It really tries to present this picture of cultural humility. We're all blind. But I want you to notice something. Notice the parable itself. There is an omniscient narrator who knows there's an elephant. And this is exactly how our culture works. You talk to someone and they say, Oh, it's your truth. But how do you know it's my truth? Because I know there's an elephant, and that none of us can know the truth. Right? They say something like, right, saying Jesus is truth, that's on one far extreme, but really we're in the middle, and we're saying this is my truth. This is the culturally humble place to speak from. But in fact, that's not what's happening. What they're actually saying is, there's no access to truth. Which if you notice, is the opposite extreme position. Both of them are making exclusive truth claims. But they're presenting themselves as culturally humble. In fact, what they're saying is, I know the truth, you don't. And you can only have a my truth, which is an exclusive truth claim. Following me? All right. There's a quote uh, by Tim Keller. Got to find it in here somewhere. Keep losing my place. It's on the screen? Yes. How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior, comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality you just claimed that none of the religions have. You're saying, you can't know truth. In fact, what they're saying is, there is no truth, which is exactly the same thing, just the opposite end of the extreme spectrum. That is our cultural moment. It's actually neither humble nor honest. Second point. The parable presumes the elephant can't speak. Greg Kokel in Stand to Reason writes this. Even though the men are blind, the elephant isn't necessarily mute. This is a factor the illustration doesn't allow for. What if the elephant speaks? The claim of Christianity is that man doesn't learn about God by groping. Instead, discovery is through God's own Self-disclosure. He's not passive and silent, leaving us to guess about his nature. He tells us what he is like and what he wants. That's what Jesus is saying. I come to bear witness to the truth. That is the entire point. Jesus is telling us, yeah, it's an elephant. And I'm the elephant, you know, going with analogy. He's not really an elephant. But the idea is the elephant speaks. Jesus reveals himself and the plans of God. The Holy Spirit inspires the Scriptures, so we have a reliable source for truth. Jesus sends the Father, sends the third member of the Trinity to be with us and to guide us and lead us into all truth. We are not blind people groping around. We are people that have been told what is true, not because we can see, but because God told us. He whispered in our ears. He gave us scriptures to guide us. He sent the Holy Spirit to inspire us. Right. This is why we need to depend on the authority of the scriptures and listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit in a cultural moment that's always fragmenting the truth claims we make. Jesus says, right, that he is the way to the Father. And what he's saying in this, I think in part, is that his way of life shapes the pattern for our way of life. He tells us, shows us what it looks like to participate in God's kingdom. When you look at his life, he's like, look at it, and you just see his life is clearly shaped by the scriptures inspired by the Spirit. He's trying to say, hey, how do you live life in a world where Pilate says, what is truth? Oh, you're constantly relying on the scriptures. Even the Son of God does it. I mean, look at it. Jesus asked about the more, most important way to worship God and live life. What do you do? I'll love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. Where's that coming from? Deuteronomy. He's quoting from the Old Testament. When he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness, what does he do? Quote Deuteronomy three times. When Jesus asks about marriage and sexuality, what does he do? Goes back to Genesis 2 and talks about God's design. When he tears apart the temple booths because the religious, uh, I don't know, system is making the temple into a marketplace, what does he do? Quotes from the prophet Isaiah. When he hangs on the cross just before his death, what does he do? Goes back to the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible. Jesus had this deep knowledge and commitment to the scriptures that oriented his life and shaped his imagination. It's not just him, right? When the early church is trying to figure out, how do we do church? How do we worship God? What do they do? Very similar. They follow in Jesus' lead. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, right? All scripture is breathed out by God. It's formed and shaped by the Holy Spirit given to us, right? God speaks, and it's profitable for teaching. You want to learn about truth? Read the scriptures for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that we can be like Jesus. That the man of God may be complete, the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You want to do good stuff with your life? Right? Go to the scriptures. They will direct the way you live and the way you think. But it's not just the Bible, right? The Bible is God's self-communication to us, but we don't worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures, right? The scriptures are God's self-communication to us about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So we also need to pay attention, how is the Spirit a part of our life? How is this connected in our cultural moment? Jesus teaches in 1426, John 1426, that his followers, like when he leaves, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and this is what he says, the helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things. Got a question? Jesus knows who's going to give you the answer. The Spirit. And will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So what does the Spirit do? Teaches us, but it teaches us what Jesus taught, which is recorded in the Scriptures. Right, so it's this mutually reinforcing system. It's not like you're led by the Spirit to do things that are contrary to the scriptures, because the Spirit is leading you back to Jesus, who's recorded in the scriptures, who inspires it? The Holy Spirit. They work together. So practically, right, in a culture that fragments truth, that lives according to kind of a flawed elephant analogy. The question, I think, is for us, will we come under the authority of the Scriptures to shape and guide our vision for life? Will we come under the authority of the Spirit to shape our vision of the good life? Because in our cultural moment, what the culture is telling you is you get to shape it. You are the blind man. You get to make sense of everything. Rock it. YOLO, you only live once, live your dream. Oddly enough, this is very much a reenactment of the entire fall narrative in Genesis 2 and 3. In Genesis 2 and 3, God presents a choice to Adam and Eve, right? It's a tree of knowledge of Tove and Ra, of good and evil. Hey, I've given you guys everything. Eat every tree you want. The garden is called delight. It's perfect. You have abundance. You have friendship and provision. You have all you want. There's this one tree, the knowledge of, tree of the knowledge of tov and ra, of good and bad. Just don't eat that. And then a snake comes in. The snake says to them, Phew, reframes God's provision in terms of restriction and says essentially, man, it seems like God's given you a raw deal you want wisdom? You want to be like God? Let me tell you a secret. Do it on your own. Then you're going to be like God. Just eat the fruit. Right? It's a modern parable for us of how do we live? Do we learn wisdom? How to do life with walks on the, in the garden with God? Listening, reading the scriptures, and listening to the leading voice of the Holy Spirit, or do we just do our own thing? And it really mirrors our cultural moment, because the thing is, our culture promises that if you just do your own thing, you're going to enjoy life. It's exactly what the snake said. But in reality, what happens is when we just do our own thing, we experience exile. Things start to fall apart that actually God has our best intentions in mind. He actually wants good things for us. And when we actually come under the authority of the Scripture, when we actually listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit, (coughs) good things happen. We have a full life, but it is what Jesus calls an abundant life. Is there a lot maybe we're doing and giving? Sure. But it's in line with God's invitation, which leads to flourishing. I wanted to share just a, <clears throat> a little uh, story at this point. Yep, just really practical. Um, <clears throat> this is kind of live for me. It's silly, maybe to you, but for me it was like life-threatening. Um, not really, but sort of. So I was invited to go to this retreat, a pastor's retreat that was meant to be refreshing and enjoyable, and people had put lots of time and prayer into this, and I'm supposed to go next week, and I am going next week. And uh, I really received it as like God's provision to me, as like, how's this a gift? And then I realized I was going to have a roommate, and I started to freak out a little bit, because I don't want a roommate really. I really want to just be able to do my own thing at this retreat. And so I started going into this anxious, fearful, self-provision mode. I like shifted my packing list. I was like, I'm going to bring a bivy sack, which is like a small tent. I'm going to bring a uh, sleeping bag. I'm going to bring an air mattress. And I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to sleep in the mountains somewhere if I need to. Yes, I realize I'm a little weird, but... I was motivated by this sense of fear. That Maybe these people that are putting on this retreat actually don't have my best interests in mind. Maybe this retreat that I thought was from God really isn't. It's going to exhaust me and I'm going to come back and I, just, I need to defend my time. I need to take this into my own hands and make this retreat according to my desires. Has anyone ever worried that People that are leading you don't have your best interests at heart. So I was reading the scriptures and I realized, oh, Jesus talks about anxiety. In the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about anxiety and the anxieties of life. And he has this line that just like drilled into me. And it was like, the Father knows what you need. Tony, Tony, that maybe my best vision of this retreat isn't God's best vision of this retreat. Right? I needed the scriptures, though, to reorient me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I needed the scriptures to reorient my heart because I was starting to get fearful. I was starting to think that God was not giving me a good thing. And then I went and told one of you about this. <laughs> Never doing that again. <laughs> and one of you prayed for me. And then immediately after was like, Yeah, I don't think you should bring your ground bag and your bivvy sack and your sleeping bag. I think you should put those away. And I was like, Yeah. You're right. I needed the Holy Spirit speaking through another person to be like, yeah, Tony, like, don't let fear rule you. There's a little example in my life that's being played out right now as I pack and leave tomorrow morning. <laughs> of Will I trust in a world where I don't always trust that people have my best interest in mind, that God does? Right? And how do I make that decision? How do I understand what the wise packing list is? I go back to the scriptures. I invite my friend into the process who the Holy Spirit see- speaks through and says, yeah, Tony, you're, you're living out of anxiety and fear. Don't do that. Trust God. All right, so on the practical side. Two things. One, start your stop doing list. Back to point one, right? Point two, I think if I, if I had two practical comments to make, they'd be these. I read a study this last week. Uh, in 2021, the American Bible Society said that uh, less than 32% of American Protestants read their Bible every day. Let's say we rock that and beat that average by a lot. That means a lot of us still are struggling to read the Bible on a regular basis. And this is the thing. I don't want to be like Debbie Downer, but If we don't read the Bible, it's very hard to live under its authority. And we can say, oh, I'm living under the authority of God. But part of this is really played out in the dailiness of are we actually reading it? Because what I watch is the less I read the scriptures, the more I just end up doing my own thing and saying, putting like a God sticker on it, saying, oh yeah, I'm following Jesus. Now, I don't really care if you spend an hour or five minutes at this point. I don't really care whether you read an entire gospel or, you know, a little chunk. Start opening the scriptures. If you're not sure where to start, start in the gospels and just read a story about Jesus every day. You can simply ask, God, what is your word to me today? You don't need to be a Bible expert, but at least start there. The second thing I would say, and this is connected, I don't think you can also do it alone. I think if we are going to be a people that are living under the authority of the Scriptures and the leading of the Holy Spirit, I think we all need at least someone in this room or in our life that we can say, like I said this last week, hey, can you pray with me about this? I read the scriptures, I'm struggling. Can you pray with me? Do all of us have at least someone that we can turn to to say, hey, I need help living under the authority of the scripture and the leading of the Holy Spirit because truth is, I'm really broken. And if weakness and opportunity meet, I'm probably just gonna do my own thing. Help me not do that. Do you have someone that you can turn to And that you actually do turn to. To pray with you. Help you live out the convictions that you read in the scripture. Because if you don't, I think you're going to really struggle. And my guess is you're probably experiencing that right now. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. I want to just kind of pray for us as we enter into worship that we would be a people that prioritize our internal life with God, a people that really live under the authority of the scriptures, right in a world that fragments all the truth claims that they declare. So I invite you to just listen to just the spirit in this moment Spirit, we just say, speak to us, convict us, reveal to us our own hearts and our own lives. We know that you want good things for us. I know you want good things for me. God, help me, help us to trust you. To trust you if we create a stop doing list that you will help us, give us the power to live out those convictions and find life-giving ways to connect with you. And God, give us an ability somehow to start opening this self-revelation you have given us called the Bible, the book, where you tell us about yourself. Give us the courage to let other people into our journey that we might Actually, be transformed into your likeness. We ask God that you would fill us. We say that you are the fount of every blessing. Let's stand and turn to Him in prayer and worship.